quick note, my guest Muhammad was kind enough to open his home to me for our interview, so you may hear the sounds of life happening in the background towards the end of this episode. Enjoy, it's a great one. Welcome to If Nothing Matters, a podcast about nihilism. What is nihilism? The belief that nothing matters on both an evaluative and a practical level. Nothing matters, and that's not a bad thing. It doesn't matter that nothing matters. It feels like in this cultural moment, a lot of people feel like nothing matters. But if that's true, how do we get through life? I'll be exploring this question with a new guest each week, and this week my guest is Mohamed Kubesi. Welcome, Mohamed. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you. Uh, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon, a couple of years before the onset of the civil war, which lasted 15 years. I grew up in a family with uh, limited resources, which were further compromised by war and displacement. Uh, I was the youngest of uh, five children. My school years were often interrupted by exacerbations of the war, which necessitated moving from Beirut to a village in the south. And uh, at times when it was relatively calm in Beirut, other relatives moved uh, in uh, to our small apartment uh, as their areas were being bombed severely. I was nine years of age uh, during the Israeli invasion of 1982, which largely demolished the country, killing 20,000 people, the vast majority of whom were civilians. As the war ended in 1990, I was preparing to join college, uh, where I studied mathematics. I had great affinity for poetry uh, from an early age, possibly because of lack of other means to pursue a hobby. I could not rely on team sports in the war or predict what would happen the following day if I were to join a school for painting or music, not that we consistently had the financial means for extracurricular activities. Poetry was relatively easy to do because I just needed a paper and a pen and I could write even in an underground shelter during the bombing. My passion for mathematics developed in high school and I decided to become a mathematician so I majored in math at the American University of Beirut. The pleasure of studying mathematics was often contaminated by the thought that I could not pursue a PhD in math in Lebanon. This and the fact that I took some electives in animal physiology tantalized my desire to study neuroscience, particularly to learn more about the biological basis of behavior and consciousness. I completed my pre-medical courses and joined medical school also at the American University of Beirut. And after I graduated, I moved to the United States to pursue clinical training where I studied neurology at NYU and epilepsy at Johns Hopkins. I'm currently a practicing physician and director of the Epilepsy Center at George Washington University in DC. After I was promoted to a full professor a couple of years ago, I decided to return to my old interests in poetry and literature, so I joined George Washington University's English Literature Program, and I'm expected to graduate with an MA next semester. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's really exciting. So you're really coming from a super interdisciplinary approach. You have the math, um, obviously physiology and all that's involved in medicine and also this piece of poetry in English. So 
I bet that gives you like a really interesting perspective on these sorts of ideas because I find oftentimes people will come from like a very rational science informed perspective and that will cause them to look at questions of meaning one way and then you know maybe other people in the humanities will come at it from a little bit more of like a fuzzy sort of mystical almost kind of way um, or a more like feelings based way so I'm, I'm expecting some interesting things for you given this background. Um, uh, do you think that that's been important to you in your life like having an interdisciplinary uh, approach? Uh, certainly. Uh, I've always uh, found math to be very close to poetry. And, I, and uh, without having the ability to verbalize that or elaborate on it, I would always assert the similarities uh, and uh, kind of stop uh, not being able to, to, to say how. Until more recently when I uh, started to find some common grounds uh, uh, between both. Uh, the the rich, richness of my experience in childhood uh, was not only academic in terms of math, neuroscience, and, and poetry and literature, but it was the, the very experiences I lived in Beirut, which is a very rich city and uh, cosmopolitan for sure. And uh, the war experience had uh, uh, its unique uh, marks on my spiritual, if you may, experiences. Yeah, I bet. I'm really excited to get into that. We'll sort of put a pin in that for the moment. Um, I do have to say I really agree with you about, you know, math and poetry speaking to each other in some way, because I think, to me, I love philosophy, right? And so I think that all these disciplines sort of point to philosophy, like the greatest metaphysical understanding. And I think poetry is one of the arts that gets the closest to that. And math is another language that gets the closest to that right and I think it's they're both about elegance and universal truths expressed exactly. through particularity I totally agree I think one common thing uh, between art and science is the fact that they both arrive at universal truths through looking at the particular yeah that's awesome um, well, I'm very curious to hear about if you have any background in philosophy or just um, thoughts about meaning based on uh, your life experience and your academic career both. Uh, my earliest encounter with questioning the meaning of being was when I was a kid, six or seven years of age. I remember once uh, staring at my own hand and feeling so surprised that I had five fingers as if I had just encountered my fingers for the first time. <laughs> This suddenly developed into a great astonishment about my being present there, as who, I didn't know. I remember running from one room to another in our small apartment in Beirut to ask two of my sisters whether they had had any such astonishment. And then with the smile of a discoverer, I would say, think about it, who are we? Are we really present? Such thoughts continued to recur, but I would often dismiss them and distract myself with mundane activities, possibly because of the fear of going crazy. Neurologically speaking, this could represent a moment of derealization, a state that may occur in panic attacks, in which familiar things suddenly look unfamiliar. The associated fear of going insane may also be a symptom of, of panic attacks, although I don't think it was a panic attack. First, because I never had panic disorder, and second, because that state was not associated with fear, heart racing, or any other uncomfortable experience. At any rate, I would later read poems and novels and find myself always underlining text that questioned identity and difference. And if I review my early poems, many of them have uh, an inherent dialogue of two selves within the same person. 
again, in retrospect, I view that as two or more brain networks communicating with one another now that I learned about <laughs> neuroscience. I later read uh, religious texts and extracted from them questions that were relevant to chronic philosophical questions. When religions answer such questions as who created the universe with only three letters, I would try to think that if this was the case, what would be the mechanism by which the universe was, quote, created by this omnipotent being? In other words, I would always try to obtain a solid and scientific understanding of things beyond religious text without necessarily contradicting religious text. Um, in college, uh, one of the books that was very enlightening to me and helped me deviate my interest uh, from religious to the purely scientific or historic was Freud's Moses and Monotheism. And later in medical school, I read uh, Heidegger's Being and Time, which further cemented my conviction that religion and philosophy are pure products of the mind. Uh, since then, I've been inclined to seek meaning within myself rather than from, from outside. Uh, interestingly, and this is sort of more recent uh, uh, in my life, I've become uh, interested in the question whether we like a text and think that it's capable of changing us only because of the hermeneutic aspects of it, meaning how we interpret it and whether the interpretation applies to our view of life, or because of its poetics, that is the way it's constructed in a fashion that allows our brains to derive meaning and aesthetic pleasure from reading it. There's always an aesthetic basis for the ideological and the political, and this question continues to tickle my brain. Yeah, wow. Um, so now I know a little bit about your background in terms of like what you read and consumed, I guess. So now I put the question to you. Were you raised to believe that life has inherent meaning? Yes, I was raised Muslim. And like uh, most other religions, specifically monotheistic religions, Islam asserts that life has an inherent meaning. Um, our presence has only one goal, which is to be close to God, refraining from actions, thoughts, and speech that perturb this relationship by adding a veil upon veil on our eyes that prevent us from seeing the truth. This is almost uh, in verbatim one of the verses of the Quran. And encourage us to do good deeds that can remove these veils and bring us closer to him. That was the uh, idea, uh, which uh, I sort of liked and uh, saw as uh, something that can make sense when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did not pay attention to much other ideas uh, of the religion. I've always been an extractor mm -hmm. of things that I think are pure and uh, I always dismiss things that I think had a temporary necessity or uh, were, were uh, the product of, of, a, of a political or a social uh, or an imperialistic situation. Yeah. Do you think that that desire led you, as you said, to sort of seek out texts that were approaching meaning in a very rational context? Because you did mention turning away from religion. Um, so was that part of your journey and sort of leaving behind um, uh, so to speak, the furniture of religion and trying to distill it down to that core and maybe that leads you to Freud and Heidegger and these other things. Exactly, exactly. I think the path was very continuous. It was not interrupted. Uh, uh, it was continuous between these thoughts which came from religious thinking in the first place 
and lived with me for a while, uh, unlike other thoughts that came from religion, which I readily dismissed. And then they, uh, they, they uh, started to gain new meaning in light of other texts. Uh, so uh, Freud's uh, Moses and monotheism simply uh, uh, dismisses the whole idea of a god and, and, and uh, uh, views uh, monotheism as, as a product of imperialism. Uh, in other words, when uh, the tribes were separate and every tribe had its own god, uh, but then when Ikhnaton, uh, uh, the pharaoh, uh, invaded larger areas, he imposed only one god on, on everyone, which was Ra, the, the, the god of the, of the sun. Uh, so uh, it, it is a, a product of imperialism, according to Freud, whether we agree with him or not. But, but the, the whole uh, narrative, historical narrative, made sense to me. And then I started to see the origin of religions as historic events that are not uh, uh, separate from the political and the social uh, uh, aspects of, of those eras. Right. And then with Heidegger, the ontological question uh, was tackled in, a, in an interesting way, which uh, I think uh, uh, appealed to me uh, as a um, preparation for me to accept Zen Buddhism. Mm. I think Zen Buddhism definitely has its traces in Heidegger's views of the human being as a temporal being as a being that cannot be viewed uh, without its background uh, in separation from the world. So uh, man is man in the world, man is a temporal being and so forth. And he even talks about the uh, anxiety of not being part of the faceless public. You know, all these things uh, uh, made sense to me and all of them uh, showed me that religion and spirituality are not to be accepted from the heavens, from the metaphysical. They are a product of our own search and our own view of the world. Right. So you did mention that there was um, some aspect of religion that carried you through these intellectual journeys, these spiritual journeys. So what do you think that sort of like one driving force is that you do want to hold on to from religion? What remains if you strip away the historical, social, cultural context? Um, I don't know if I continue to call it religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there is a, there is a, a drive uh, for somebody to have some spiritual peace. So I don't think I'm religious. I think uh, I'm probably spiritual. Mm-hmm. And uh, spirituality is not uh, something that is uh, separate from the physical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually is inherent in the physical world. Everything is both concrete and abstract. That's how our brains perceive the universe. That's how language is. As a, um, the word is a signifier that is connected with a specific signified sort of abstract representation in the brain, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, spirituality comes from these realizations, from appreciation the thing of, the, of the thing in itself, of anything. Uh, you can see the whole universe in anything. Mm-hmm. This is spiritual. I mean, this is a, a physical fact, but it's spiritual. Mm-hmm. It's a physical fact to realize that the iodine and the sodium uh, uh, atoms that are in the salt jar will become you and have been you and your ancestors. 
And it's a physical fact to realize that in any piece of uh, tissue or of paper, there is sun and there is cloud and there is human labor and there is water. So uh, the, the, the oneness of the, of the universe and its representation in various forms, which we call things and you and I, is a spiritual uh, uh, exercise, if I may. And uh, it's not necessarily religious in the traditional sense. I have to say, you're really speaking my language here. I'm just like, I love um, semiotics, and so the signifiers and signified, I'm like, yes, all about it. And also just um, this idea of everything's been somewhere before, and, and even looking at an object and thinking of the labor that went into it, these atoms will become my atoms, my atoms will become the atoms in the earth, right? Um, so I'm really curious, actually, to maybe jump ahead and ask you a little bit about your religious beliefs. Um, so what are your religious beliefs and how do they play a role in creating meaning for you? It's uh, uh, akin to a scientific understanding of the universe. And uh, this can be achieved by disconnecting oneself from dwelling on past thoughts or imagining the future. Specifically from disconnecting oneself from gaining thinking from desire, from attachments. Once you are totally in the present moment, meaning your mind is with your body now, you become more able to experience this unity of things. The, 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 the physical knowledge about the world, you appreciate it in an experiential fashion rather than intellectual fashion. Mm -hmm. And this frees you, this gives you some spiritual peace. This is, uh, in essence, my spiritual life. And I don't know if you want to call it religion or not, but, mm -hmm. but, but this is what it is. Uh, the practice, since we're calling it religion, the, 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 the practice or the, the ritual that is uh, done in that regard is simply sitting and uh, uh, focusing on one's in-breath and out-breath uh, which are happening in the present moment. With each in-breath, you're taking the whole universe in, and with an out-breath, you're uh, exhaling it, and uh, uh, you realize there is no difference between who you are and the rest of the world. Uh, being in that sort of realm of what I call realm of pure religion um, achieves the, 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 the spiritual peace that constitutes my spiritual life. To talk about uh, the realm of uh, pure religion, it's important to talk about impure religion, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, when I say pure religion, I'm talking about these moments which are not directly like an acute angle at an extraneous being, uh, but at oneself. You see everything in your oneself, in, your, in yourself, in your, in your body in the present moment. Uh, when you direct your focus into outside, uh, into some metaphysical being uh, outside, uh, you probably start to introduce some impurities on these moments. Um, impure religion is one that is contaminated by gaining thinking and by uh, uh, social and political and imperialistic, if I may add, uh, uh, desires. Mm -hmm. And pure religion is just 
you and yourself and your body in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to hear what you think about um, the notion of desire and want in a Buddhist context and letting go of something like desire. Um, I think for some people in what you would say are like an impure religion, right? Um, they might be desiring an afterlife, heaven, redemption of some kind, right? And think that that's worth aspiring to in order to live by like an ethical moral code. Um, so what would you say to that person um, to sort of uh, defend your view in the face of their more ends-based view of, you know, in order to live appropriately now, I need this want and this goal of the future? I think the past and the future do not exist. They exist intellectually. They exist in terms of extrapolation. They exist truly only in terms of their being rooted in the present moment and represented in the present moment. But if you disconnect them from the present, they do not exist. They are abstract uh, ideas, really. Uh, The only thing that exists is me now, here, and that's, for me, enough. Uh, If you do not believe in the future, then you will gradually denounce gaining thinking and uh, you will tame your desire. The desire is particularly tamed when one is satisfied in the present moment. If you are self-sufficient and happy, then why would you seek something that is outside, that is not here, that is not attainable? Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, problem with religions in general is that they tell the individual, you have to do this and refrain from doing that. And uh, the individual then faces a big dilemma. Well, I desire food, mm-hmm. why would I fast? I desire women, I desire my neighbor's wife, mm-hmm. but this is a big sin, so now guilt comes in, mm-hmm. and so forth. If you just impose the rules on the individual, Uh, they will create a problem. They will not achieve spiritual peace. Uh, Rules have to come from within. Instead of telling somebody, don't steal, teach somebody to be happy in the present moment. If they're satisfied, if they're really enjoying their breath and their vision and the flower and the warmth, whatever it is that is around, then they will be less needy of seeking what, what, what is not there. They will not steal, theoretically speaking. Mm-hmm. This is obviously possible uh, in, I mean, among individuals who have a pure practice, who, mm-hmm. who always approach the spiritual practice of breathing and of appreciation of the present moment with, with a pure mind, with a beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and do not uh, contaminate their thinking by uh, the lack of salience that the habitual imposes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, do you think that this um, line of thought tends toward asceticism? So uh, I think a lot of the common conceptions about Buddhism is thinking about like a monk alone in a room just eating only rice right separating himself from all worldly desires right so if if you're fully self-sufficient and truly living in the present moment and only reacting to what's happening um 
how does it become consistent to seek comfort in other people, in friends, family, love, to have things like professional goals? This is something that's always troubled me with Buddhism because I feel like there's a uh, conflict to me between this idea of uh, letting go of desire and still trying to live in the world as most people do in our very externally focused society. If you let go of desire, you will not uh, live an ascetic life. You will enjoy uh, what you what you have uh, thoroughly, even more thoroughly than otherwise. Asceticism itself is problematic because it imposes a lot of harsh conditions on the body. Uh, the goal they claim is to free the, 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 the spirit, to achieve freedom through uh, the suffering of the body, which the Buddha himself uh, uh, tried and did not find it a, a good solution because you keep uh, uh, suffering, uh, you know, you experience hunger and what have you, until the body reaches the, the brink of, of, of death and then you have to eat in order to renew that and the cycle keeps going. This is not uh, what, what, what the Buddha uh, taught his, his disciples. He found out that the body has to be comfortable. And within the comfort of the body, you have to focus on the present moment. And when you do so, you will, uh, you will achieve the, you know, the spiritual peace that will be sustainable. Uh, so the lack of desire uh, that is uh, taught in, in, uh, uh, or recommended in, in, in Buddhism is not, does not mean completely refraining from seeking happiness and pleasure. Buddhism teaches that whatever you seek, whatever you have, you have to enjoy it mindfully instead of uh, mechanically, robotically. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, don't be an, an, an automaton of your desire. Uh, be aware of your desire, be aware of what you need, uh, be in control and enjoy it as, as a mindful uh, uh, exercise, mm -hmm. practice. How do you, as a Buddhist, um, approach a situation where uh, let's say you're striving to get a certain degree, which is something that you've done, right? And perhaps you're in a position um, where it's not possible, right? So you said in Lebanon it wasn't possible to get a PhD in math, right? Um, so looking back on this from this Buddhist perspective, would you say that you were aware of the desire and aware of what it would take to achieve the desire and aware of the difficulty of the process as it was happening, but still sort of like keeping yourself tempered so as not to get frustrated, swept away by it. It's, it's a tricky way to live, I guess, but... Yeah, I think simply what I did at that age, and I wasn't aware of, of the Buddhist practices, was uh, I accepted the fact that uh, one degree was not attainable, and I, at the same time, I started to find pleasure in pursuing other disciplines, and I ended up you know, becoming a physician. Medical school was available mm -hmm. when PhD in math was not. And, uh, and I was okay. I was okay with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably had been trained to let go of desires that were not attainable. I always wanted to learn an instrument, for example, growing up. And uh, we had no 
means to do that. Obviously, the logistic uh, uh, situation, uh, the, the, the price of the instrument, the, the lessons amidst a civil war, it was not possible. And that ached uh, uh, for a while. And uh, I always also wanted to, to read more books, and that was also not available. Uh, I had many desires that were not fulfilled, but despite that, I still found pleasure in, in small things. Uh, I would uh, sometimes rip a paper from, from a magazine or from even a pack of cigarettes or anything, and uh, in the bus uh, or you know, in the taxi, I would you know, write a small poem on it, and that to me meant the whole thing. I've never published poetry in a book, because I know that I have not uh, uh, spent enough time on working on that craft, uh, you know, to, to, to yield something that is probably worth disseminating. But uh, I found a lot of pleasure in writing it, and I continue to occasionally find, find such pleasure. So, in other words, I, uh, my life circumstances taught me to find pleasure in what is available. Uh, instead of uh, getting depressed over what is not attainable. Right. So let's pivot a little to talk about meaning, um, because I'm interested to hear how you would define meaning. Do you think that living in the present moment, um, peeling away the levels of past and future and following that path of spirituality, is that a form of meaning or does it give you meaning? Well, that's a great question. I think much of the meaning that has been bestowed upon life uh, by various philosophies and religious traditions has emerged from the anxiety of uh, having disability, aging, and death, including death of desire. Uh, or from the rapture that comes from intermittent delusions of immunity to such fate. I do not believe uh, uh, that there is a fixed meaning of life. What we perceive as meaning is often experientially ephemeral and philosophically shakeable. <laughs> uh, meaning is a state of mind, simply. Uh, what determines it is the net result of various factors taking place in our consciousness that are largely shaped by input from the internal environment and the external environment. So denying the meaning of life does not preclude pursuit of, of happiness. Indeed, it, it justifies that pursuit even more strongly. I think that one of the fortunate attributes we have as a species uh, is our ability to train ourselves, the brain trains itself, to appreciate life in the present moment by minimizing dwellings on the past and planning uh, for the future. So you may have already answered this, but just to ask you very directly, do you believe that life has inherent meaning? Uh, well, yes, yes and no. So, I mean, there is pure religion, as I said, and impure religion. Pure religion can be traced in most religions as a moment of clarity of seeing oneself as part of the universe. This is meaning, in, you know, in its, in its own right. It's, it's experiential, though. It's not something that can be stated and disseminated uh, with the same effect on everybody that, that encounters it intellectually. Uh, so uh, 
in Zen Buddhism, for example, there is no self. When we say so, it doesn't mean that you and I do not exist. It means that you represent the whole universe in this particular form, and I represent the same universe in my particular form. Uh, if you extract certain lines from holy books that appreciate the thing in itself as a representation of everything, then you are encountering aspects of the realm of pure religion, where meaning probably can be found. Mm -hmm. uh, however, you have to be aware of the abundant contaminations in, in religious texts. If a person develops a single-minded way of polishing their abilities to view things as they are, a process that necessitates elimination of all preconceptions and misconceptions, the sources of which are numerous, including language itself, then they develop a, a sort of meaning. As they progress further in this journey, uh, as we are taught by some Zen masters, the ultimate goal is to reach emptiness. And uh, uh, meaning in that regard is a step towards the appreciation of the nothingness, uh, which in turn yields a greater meaning. So, in other words, uh, nothingness, believing in nothingness is not the same thing as not believing in anything, mm -hmm. right? Uh, believing in nothingness is, to me, believing in no-thingness. No-thingness. Thingness as, as its independence from the rest of the universe. Mm -hmm. So there is no-thingness, for sure. Uh, there is one universe, you know, uh, but uh, this is different from not believing in anything, which probably nihilism. There we uh, go. Uh, views. <laughs> <laughs> this makes me think. Um, really, what you're talking about is breaking down subject-object barriers. There is no subject and no object. It's all one thing. The Zen Buddhist might say there are no such things as subjects or objects. Do you think that's correct? Y yes and no. One thing about Zen Buddhism is, uh, I mean, one thing that it teaches over and over is uh, to denounce dichotomous thinking. Dichotomous thinking tends to bring suffering, really. Uh, we always have to consider the oneness of dualities. Uh, there's a poem I wrote uh, years ago that says, uh, I'm going to translate, so I don't write in English, but I write in Lebanese, but uh, it says, uh, only half of the poem belongs to the poet and the other half to the reader, you know, obviously. Uh, I mean, th this is something that in a way unifies, you know, reader, reader and text, maybe subject and object. Uh, but um, the oneness of dualities is, is a key to understanding the fundamental uh, teachings of, of, of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. It says... Uh, also in what you said about how meaning um, begets more meaning when you are more open and accepting of nothingness that paves the way for greater meaning um, would you call that enlightenment uh, enlightenment uh, I don't know what enlightenment is uh, I I know that it is taught as something that people experience when they are capable of arresting uh, or freezing or denouncing their desires and attachments and clinging. Mm -hmm. um, 
and enlightenment is probably not totally separate from emptiness you know that that the buddhists uh, talk about but the mm -hmm. process of uh, uh, you know, sequential appearances of meaning versus lack of meaning versus meaning and lack of meaning is, is a very normal and even, I would say, uh, biological process of how the, of how the brain grows. Uh, it is like the growth of a snake which necessitates shedding off a skin in order to grow another. This is what we do with ideas. Uh, with with conceptions, uh, you have to accept a specific idea before you abandon it. When you abandon it, you may f you may feel for a short time temporarily uh, the anxiety of of having abandoned something and kind of like you are naked in the universe without any dogma to to adhere to. But then you develop another one out of that that is brighter and more solid than the preceding one and then you shed that and you keep going it's uh, sort of like um, can be likened to the cellular process of learning in the brain we are all we, we, you know we are born with a lot more neurons in our brains than than at later stages in life and mm -hmm. uh, uh, neuronal loss neuronal death is part of the growth and part of the learning in that mm -hmm. sense uh, nihilism if i may uh, uh, as a transient process is as important as meaning assertion in this journey and more importantly the journey itself is what we have to enjoy rather than the destination i don't know if there is a destination who can say really <laughs> um i have a question for you about neuroscience because i'm very interested in what you said about um neurons in the development of the brain, like a snake shedding its skin. Um, what is the effect of trauma on the brain in the sense that if we're constantly revising our ideas and our conceptions of the world and our brains are changing and growing, um, is that always in a positive direction or can there be deleterious effects because of something like trauma that set us back and maybe we have to abandon an idea and instead embrace a more toxic idea? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the uh, effects of trauma on the brain have been studied. We still need to learn a lot more. But we know that trauma can result in some uh, measurable changes in the brain. I don't want to say permanent changes because I still believe that they are modifiable uh, by mindfulness-based therapy or other psychotherapies uh, but uh, the effects of trauma on the brain are measurable we know that there is a structure in the brain called the amygdala which processes emotions and the amygdala on the right side of the brain particularly not the left the right is the non-dominant side the left is the dominant because it processes language uh, uh, and uh, mathematics and other uh, uh, cognitive activities um, the, uh, the right amygdala is hyperactive in individuals who have been exposed to trauma. And the control of the frontal lobe centers on the amygdala are less uh, robust in the traumatized individual. Mm -hmm. So we know that there is something wrong that occurs uh, uh, after trauma 
in the brain that uh, uh, continues sometimes to um, reenact itself, uh, producing uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or other uh, manifest, uh, you know, manifestations of, of, of past trauma. And uh, whether this can interfere with the spiritual journey and leave its fingerprint on it, uh, diverting it in a specific path or not, it, it is certainly possible. But I also believe that uh, uh, good practice of mindfulness still has a room there. Mm-hmm. Because uh, a lot of the traumatized individuals have benefited from various modes of of psychotherapy and mindfulness-based therapy is, is one of these. Mm-hmm. So in other words, mindfulness-based therapy or mindfulness, being aware of oneself in the present moment and all what we talked about, has a way of re-establishing connections of the brain. In other words, erasing gradually the uh, scars that, mm-hmm. that the trauma leaves in the brain. Well. There is a big body of, uh, of uh, scientific literature uh, that uh, studies the neural correlates of uh, mindful meditation. Um, and uh, scientists, they recruit expert meditators and they also recruit novices and they compare their brains and they find uh, specific connections that develop after uh, uh, years of meditation, uh, which do not exist in, in the brain of the novice meditator. Wow, that's mm-hmm. pretty impressive. I mean, that's really the benefit, I think, of uh, your particular perspective, um, that you have the spiritual awareness and also this vast scientific knowledge. I think that just really makes this very enlightening for me because to hear you talk about Buddhism and a particular spirituality and philosophy and then its reflection in the real world as you said they're inseparable right like it is just scientifically true from what we observe in the world so to hear that is is really interesting because I think that most people think that there's a separation and as I said I think before a lot of the people I've interviewed come at it from one or the other perspective right either it's religious and it's feeling and it's a spiritual journey or it's facts and it's rationality right and you're really seeking to unite them I think Totally. Uh, I mean, this is the reason why I don't know if I'm religious or not. I think uh, uh, what uh, may sound as uh, aspects of Zen Buddhism in my life may be completely continuous with my uh, clinical practice and my research as a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. This is the reason why uh, Zen Buddhism appealed to me. And if uh, science refutes uh, some fundamental aspect of any dogma, uh, it will no longer appeal to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense, the, the you know, uh, the modern physics, modern neurobiology uh, have not refuted anything. Indeed, they have uh, asserted a lot of the Zen Buddhist teachings that we that have been there for twenty five hundred years. Yeah. So I think that we've uh, gone through the territory of your belief system pretty well. Um, so I guess let's talk about nihilism, right? If there's a meaning to be had in emptiness and nothingness in, you know, fixation on the, I wouldn't say fixation, but concentration on the present, um, how would you define nihilism in opposition to that? Well, uh, I think uh, the uh, nihilism is, is, is a 
school of thought. I mean, it, uh, it uh, developed in the West, uh, arguably, as a reaction to meaning uh, assertions that were flawed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the, the definition of nihilism is, uh, is that there is a complete lack of meaning, uh, purpose, uh, intrinsic value uh, of life, and uh, you can uh, project that into various aspects of humanities. Moral uh, nihilism argues that morality does not exist. Epistemological nihilism argues that knowledge is not possible. Ontological nihilism argues that reality does not exist at all. So uh, uh, I think it, it's, a re- it's a reaction to uh, flawed assertions of the meaning of life. In other words, nihilism is the apparent meaninglessness of life brought about in Western history by the bankruptcy of the evaluative structures that had given life uh, consistency and direction. I think nihilism, in essence, is not totally different from assertions of meanings in various philosophies and, and spiritual traditions. The, the common ground for both is the static nature of the point of view. You see, both nihilism and, uh, uh, and yeah. other philosophies, they, 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 they uh, uh, adhere to a, to a static view. Like a dogma, right? yeah. Exactly. Uh, so nihilism imitates meaning assertion by uh, stating a solid uh, and permanent view of life. Instead, if one is to acknowledge the um, impermanence of things, you may arrive at nothingness as no-thingness, right? And uh, in that sense, nihilism as a philosophy pulls the rug from underneath itself because it's an assertion of something. Mm -hmm. One aspect of nihilism, to to go back to neuroscience, one aspect of nihilism that, that is possibly relatively easy to refute is moral nihilism, right? Absolutely. Like, uh, uh, recent scientific studies have demonstrated that uh, uh, giving and gratitude result in improvement of the subjective well-being as well as in creating harmony of, of interpersonal relationships. Uh, scientists have, have designed uh, interpersonal paradigms to quantify the benefit to the beneficiary and the cost to the benefactor examining their representation and integration in the brain by functional MRI, functional neuroimaging. They found that activation of brain regions called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and nucleus accumbens, these areas are important for uh, gratification and pleasure. Nucleus accumbens in particular is involved in addiction even. Oh wow. Yeah, so uh, activation in these areas is greater for, for, for benefits to others than to oneself. Yeah, wow. this, is, this is a scientific wow. study. And, and further, this activation increases with more uh, practice of giving and, and gratitude. So it is also plastic, uh, modifiable, mm-hmm. uh, it grows through practice. So the brain regions uh, of, of pleasure and, and gratification uh, can be seen on the scanner mm-hmm. in these individuals. In that sense, giving and gratitude are, are not without value. Mm-hmm. Uh, a problem with nihilism is that the meaning uh, uh, that it refutes is experienced. You see what I mean? So it's not an intellectual dialogue anymore. If somebody tells me there is no value of gratitude, but every time I practice gratitude, I feel pleasure, mm-hmm. then you know I, I will not believe in, 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 in his statement or her statement. So uh, one has to start from 
observing ourselves as a species within the world. It's humbling to realize how much of our behavior as individuals and, and communities exists in various forms in other species. Uh, what drives our behavior is the goal of deriving gratification, no matter how we perceive it, uh, similar to what other species do. Uh, the territorial imperative is not a unique human feature. You know, there's a book mm -hmm. called The Territorial Imperative by Robert Ardrey, and, and he shows that when uh, lionesses are in heat and lions are about to mate, if an intruder comes, they forget all about reproduction and, def def you know, defend the land, right? I mean, we have that as humans, right? Also, altruism exists in other species, including baboons. Uh, animal behavior studies have shown that when a predator approaches a, a family of baboons, one jumps in front of the predator to distract him while the, yeah. while the others escape, and uh, knowing probably that he's going to be eaten, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, much of what we call good or bad exists in various forms in other species as well. And if we accept ourselves as this mammalian species and uh, become aware of our primal drives, we will then appreciate our abilities to modify our own brains to maximize the pursuit of single-minded behaviors that aim at, uh, at establishing longer-lasting states of, of peace and happiness. Mm -hmm. Meaning, in other words, comes from just observing things as they are and mm -hmm. observing ourselves and probably celebrating the fact that we have the ability to observe ourselves yeah. and continue to do that from uh, higher and higher levels. Yeah. Um, I think that some people might take the perspective that we're nothing but animals, right? And that all of our drives towards empathy and altruism are simply evolutionary on some level, right? In order to maintain social cohesion and, and perpetuate the species, right? Like a baboon, right? Some people might find that demoralizing, right? Because they are not accepting of the idea that we are just another animal. They think that humans are in some way exceptional, right? Or they might view it as a rationality for nihilism because they, especially moral nihilism, because they believe that we're no different from an animal, right? But I suppose what you're saying is we do have that capacity to revise our thinking and our behaviors. Do you think that differentiates us from other animals? Do you think there are differences between us and other animals? There are differences. Uh, the, the, I think um, I've never been a, a, a hyena or a dog, but, <laughs> But I, I think our ability to observe our own thoughts and mm. mental formations is something nice. I don't want to call it unique, but it's something good that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, because these observations would put things in perspective and minimize the automated movement of, of the individual in life to stop and reflect. Uh, and uh, this is why in religious practices they, they uh, kind of systematize such practices as prayers or whatever, you know, but although often they end up being behaviors that lack, that lack meaning that even defeat their own purposes. But if one practices uh, uh, stopping and reflecting on one's thoughts, uh, observing their own mental formations, emotions, uh, there is a chance that uh, there is a chance of uh, going beyond what has been imprinted in us uh, uh, by evolution. Um, one thing that 
evolution left in us is something called the negativity bias, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's protective uh, uh, in a way. So uh, if you go to um, a place where there are landmines, right? And uh, you know that there are landmines or you see people dying, whatever, then you will remember that very strongly and uh, it will be impossible to erase that memory. But if you go to uh, the park or to the supermarket or you do something that is enjoyable, but uh, you know, not negative, uh, you may forget it. Mm-hmm. So eventually the memory tends to sieve out the, uh, uh, the negative ones, uh, which can uh, on the long run create uh, a state of low mood. Yeah? If everything you remember is negative and you forget the good things in life, we have the ability of observing that, and we know that, that, that it is evolutionarily important to protect us from dangerous zones, right? Mm-hmm. And dangerous experiences. But we also have the ability to write down the good things that we're experiencing every day, mm-hmm. you know? And try to engrave that, and try to have that uh, produce longer-lasting effect on our view of life, mm-hmm. you see? So, so the, the plasticity of the brain is... Uh, 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 amazing uh, mm-hmm. in that it allows the brain itself, which is us, you know, to do things that will create uh, uh, new networks or that will probably cause the atrophy of other established networks and mm-hmm. so forth. Yeah, so yeah. there's a part of us you think that is neurologically sound that in some way we have the ability to revise our. M- primal urges and our innate qualities in order to improve them, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Towards achieving more happiness and peace, yeah. So would you say that is meaning? Yes. Yes. I mean, m- meaning, like I said, uh, uh, it has no fixed definition, but uh, I find myself using the term meaning when I talk about behaviors of that sort. Mm-hmm. You know, voluntary, deliberate behaviors at you know, uh, to, to, to observe uh, a negative thing and try to uh, accept it and, and minimize it and surround it by, by good things. You know, just like you see the weeds uh, and then when you pull them, they become nutrition for the rose bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. We have the ability... transition was there a time in your life when nihilism was particularly plaguing you uh not really Uh, my journey can be summarized as trimming of many layers of what has been termed meaning in order to reach an elusive core instead of uh, facing an anxiety provoking meaninglessness suddenly Mm -hmm. Um, if you sculpt nihilism Uh, as at least a temporary stage of shedding meaning gradually and thoughtfully out of various layers of what has been termed meaning, you will not probably develop the anxiety of meaninglessness. Instead, uh, you will embrace a a transient nihilistic aspect as, as part of a larger comforting truth. The sculpting effort, call it sculpting, uh, 
itself entails adopting views uh, temporarily only to abandon them later, as we mentioned previously. Um, so, like certainty, nihilism is an essential component of the journey. The, without death, there is no life, you know. Uh, again, we go back to the oneness of duality and the shedding of uh, uh, dichotomous thinking. Uh, similarly, without some nihilistic moments, there is no meaning. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you say you never really struggled with nihilism as such because you were just trying to get at this core that you felt was constant. Um, were there stressful times in your life growing up in a war-torn environment? Did you see anyone else struggle with nihilism? I think that war can maybe inspire those feelings of the questioning and then the anxiety surrounding questioning, right? Yeah. So the thought of, of dying and not knowing yeah. Uh, I've seen many, many different manifestations of nihilism uh, uh, that range from major depression and inability to consume food or water and just sitting in one corner in one room forever unless somebody rescues them to somebody who kills anyone uh, that, they, they, that crosses the street. Like there are, there were, uh, when I was like 10 or 11, there was a sniper near my school, uh, who was apparently too bored because no uh, adults were crossing the street. Eventually, uh, two little children were crossing and he actually killed them both, you know. Uh, so, I mean, all these things are probably uh, manifestations of, of, of uh, lack of meaning, of uh, uh, lack of happiness in a way mm -hmm. you know uh, so yeah the, the civil war uh, was rich in such uh, scenes nihilism if I may uh, or other probably psychological disorders you know mm -hmm. I don't want to lump nihilism under psychological disorders but but I've seen that I, I personally uh, uh, used to judge which I don't do anymore, or I try to avoid. I used to judge that this person who is sitting there, instead of having a philosophical problem, although they may philosophize it, they are simply having a major depression, and mm -hmm. this can be treated by a chemical. And the other person who is uh, killing children is probably uh, having a nervous breakdown of sorts because of confinement and... and uh, uh, lack of communication and what have you and what have you. I would always medicalize these things uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, without accepting that they had any, uh, you know, philosophical basis uh, at that age, you know, which right. kind of kept me sort of uh, tethered to, to uh, a, a solid place, you know, mm -hmm. instead of, you know, getting uh, drifted mm -hmm. uh, into somewhere that were more anxiety provoking. Yeah. Um. That's interesting. So this does bring up a question that I have um, about hedonism, because if what you're doing is in each present moment following your pleasures, right, can't that lead to this sort of behavior, like you're saying, if this person could have possibly derived pleasure from this, or people who derive pleasure out of hurting others in some way, mm -hmm. um, how could they find a path out of unethical behavior if all they're doing is following their pleasures in the present moment? Uh, that's... That's a, uh, that's a great question. I mean, one has to probably have some intellectual uh, understanding of uh, where the p 
pleasures can be maximized, you see? Yeah. Uh, and where they can be uh, longer lasting uh, and more real, not just transient. Um, so bodily pleasures uh, are transient, you know. Uh, other pleasures are longer lasting. This is one thing that probably is easy to, to see, right? Uh, but if one is to indulge in, in physical pleasure uh, without any limits, uh, eventually they will not experience the pleasure, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, they will keep going further and further until eventually they will probably start seeking uh, uh, something painful, mm -hmm. you know? I think this is uh, what uh, uh, some people have written about, including Ellen Watts. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but and eventually they seek more and more and more and more painful things until they probably die. You mm -hmm. see, uh, so uh, so that path is similar to uh, its other extreme, which is asceticism. Mm -hmm. You know, in in that they both eventually lead to the demise of the body. Mm -hmm. The middle way. Uh, is probably healthier. <laughs> People live longer. By the way, there's another study that showed that meditators uh, uh, have some changes in their telomeres, which are part of the you know uh, DNA of, mm -hmm. of, in the brain cells that uh, is responsible for cell senility, for aging and death of the mm -hmm. cell. And these change in in uh, expert meditators, so the cells live of the brain live longer wow. you know so i mean even at the cellular level this this has been has been studied That's which wild. is which is which is very interesting so um, so the true hedonistic is one who can have pleasures that are sustainable mm -hmm. attainable and not uh, they do not cause the phenomenon of tolerance you know Tolerance in medicine mm -hmm. is, is when you gradually require higher doses to achieve the same effect, you know? Right. You know, yeah. Such as with, with bodily pleasures. You know? Right. That's yeah. interesting. So would you say that a well-thought-out hedonism is what you're prescribing, so to speak? I think so. I mean, I think so. I think uh, my um, uh, view of, of, of Buddhism, of... Uh, the, the you know the spiritual practice of observing the physical reality of the world, the oneness of of everything, uh, the oneness of dualities in in, in particular, uh, enjoying the present moment, is a very sustainable way of deriving uh, pleasure, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and peace, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you can see gradually its effect on others around you, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, people realize that there's something comforting uh, in this person who practices, uh, you know, in this way. And uh, it is, like I said, healthy and sustainable, does not lead to the demise of the body, does not uh, paralyze you from pursuing uh, daily activities. Uh, mm -hmm. Indeed, you will probably do better even professionally and artistically when you have that kind of, uh, that kind of peace. Yeah. So is that what you would recommend to someone who's struggling with nihilism, who maybe feels that it's overwhelming? 
Well, well the first thing uh, for those who struggle with nihilism is to probably, the first advice is to probably dismiss the whole question of meaning versus no meaning. Mm -hmm. Because after all, this is, this is a, 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 a language issue before, it, before anything else, you know. Yeah. Uh, the question of, of meaning versus lack of meaning cannot be tackled uh, successfully using uh, merely uh, intellectual tools. Um, because of the definition of meaning being a little bit nebulous. Um, so meaning is a state of mind and struggling with nihilism arguably has its origin in the eager seeking of meaning where there is none. Meaning emerges from its absence sometimes. And everything, whether tangible or abstract, has a meaning and lacks a meaning at the same time. So this is again the oneness of, of duality and the struggle is a product of, of dichotomous uh, thinking. Mm -hmm. So uh, instead of dwelling on the question of nihilism, enjoy what you have right now. Observe your fears, your anxieties, and acknowledge them. Reassure yourself like a mother reassures her crying baby and resort to a scientific view of the universe. Nothing disappears, everything changes. That's the universe. And I think it's nice to, to, to not only to understand this idea, but to touch it, you see, to feel it. Mm -hmm. Nothing disappears. When you, when you burn a piece of paper, it doesn't disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the energy of the fire goes into the cosmos, becomes something else, uh, the molecules become ashes, etc. The same happens with our bodies and the bodies of our ancestors and, mm -hmm. and everything. So, uh, the, I mean, these, these views, will make the question of meaning versus lack of meaning less relevant. It will open a new uh, vista on, 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 on life. Um, like I said before, uh, uh, our own bodies will no longer be here a year from now due to tissue remodeling, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so this is important to see. So in that sense, the, the, the the, the, the rice grains that are currently being harvested in Indonesia will become you and me uh, uh, next month, maybe, or something, yeah. you know. So we appreciate the present moment, and at some level of our consciousness, we are aware, everybody is aware of this oneness of all things. Uh, think of the prevalence of, of metaphors in language. What does the metaphor do? It approximates two things and unifies two things mm -hmm. that are seemingly separate. There is no uh, two separate things. Everything is connected in this world. And this is a physical, scientific fact. So uh, uh, poetry as a snapshot of clear consciousness fuses the metaphysical with the physical, life with death. Even when art praises nihilism, it encompasses meaning. And I don't mean hermeneutically here. I mean the meaning. Uh, uh, the meaning is present through the aesthetics, to the perceiver at least, and through the drive of the artist to produce art. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just the truth of nihilism as part of the, the one and the whole, right? Like you're saying, to obliterate like the duality of exactly. and nihilism and meaning. Exactly. That's really fantastic. Exactly. Um, I just want to ask you one more question, which is when you were talking about... Um, even telomeres, right, having this positive impact from mindfulness, right? It made me feel like a sense of awe, you know? So do you think that this philosophy or this spirituality includes awe for you? Um, 
the, the science of it produces the awe, like you said. Uh, the, the philosophy itself, it's not awe as much as it is a realization that I've always been like that, and everything has always been like that. There is a, there is a Zen monk who says, when I was not a Buddhist, I thought that people were a Buddhist or a non-Buddhist. But when I became a Buddhist, I realized that everybody is a Buddhist. You see? <laughs> yeah. So uh, when, when I read uh, about Zen Buddhism, I realized that I had always been like that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like when you, uh, uh, when you, let's say you have some genetic thing that makes you see the green, uh, red, yeah? Mm-hmm. Some color blindness and you haven't found a name for it. But then uh, you meet an ophthalmologist one day and he tells you, oh, this is color blindness because you inherited it from your grandfather, whatever. You mm-hmm. know? Like they put a name to it. Zen Buddhism was putting a name to what I had had for ever yeah. and to what I think everybody has yeah. at yeah. some level of their consciousness or intermittently. The, the beauty of the practice is that it makes you uh, uh, capable of reproducing, of controlling the presence of such moments instead of just uh, waiting for them to, to, uh, to, to come to you every now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. And that overall is a positive impact um, on your life and as you said, the lives of others when they come in contact with you. Yes, at times when I, when I adhere to my practice <laughs> and when I'm not overwhelmed by work and I'm sleep deprived, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me, Mohammed. It was a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. It makes you. Thanks for listening to If Nothing Matters. You can follow us on Instagram at If Nothing Matters or shoot us an email, ifnothingmatters at gmail.com. This is your host, Laura Ociani, signing off. <laughs>